Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Byron Dixon OBE. Byron is the CEO and founder of Microfresh, a pioneering biotechnology company based in Leicester. Byron, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Good afternoon, Scott. Nice to meet you. Nice to be be part of this programme. It's a real pleasure having you join us, Byron. Um, The purpose of this discussion is, of course, first and foremost, to establish your take on leadership. So if we take that word leader aside initially and just explore that in a little bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? Wow, that's uh, that's a $64,000 question. Uh, in my eyes, a leader is somebody that believes in themselves, believes in their product or service, believes in the team and the people around them. Uh, and that can be quite a deep, quite deep thinking because it's, an, it's almost like an inner confidence that whatever you create, you can take the, to, the, um, to the highest point. And of course, with that confidence comes the fact that you're not scared of failure because you know you can recreate afterwards. So leadership to me is setting an example of the team around you, um, bringing them along with you on the journey, realizing that no man is an island. People talk about leaders, and they, I mean, typical leaders in history, they, you think of some pretty terrible people if they were born today, like Henry VIII. Um, but also there are some nice and fluffy characters, the Richard Bransons, uh, Obama is a, is a great example of a leader that managed to bring a lot of people around with him. So for me, leadership is about directing the people around you, bringing people along with you and having inner confidence in yourself that whatever you do, you'll take to the best of your ability. Absolutely. Some fantastic examples that you've mentioned there um, as well, uh, Byron. And um, I think when it comes to leadership, we say that leadership and management are essentially different things, but I think there does have to be a little bit of an overlap, particularly with regard to people management, especially because um, leaders need to be good communicators, don't they? I think that's fair to say. And people management inevitably becomes part of that. When it comes to working and managing people, then how would you describe your own personal sort of leadership style in that regard? Wow, okay. My, uh, well, the thing with me is I, I like people. I'm interested in people. Um, I'm interested in where they're from, how they're doing, what they're doing today, their background, their family. And I feel that's an essential part of leadership is that you genuinely care for the people around you and they feel that. So if they're going through a tough time, you emphasize with them. You bring them along with you. If they're going through a good time, you want to celebrate that with them. Um, whether I'm, I've, I mean, I wouldn't class myself as being able to give any advice on management, but what I do know is that I try and encourage the people around me to be a part of this journey on the Microsoft journey um, and feel that they are integral to the business and the growth of Microsoft as a brand globally uh, and that they actually mean something. They're not employees, although legally, of course, technically they are employees, but it's almost like a family that we all grow together. It's win-win. If I win, they win. If they win, I win. If I lose, they lose. If they lose, I lose. 
And I think that sort of sense that we're all in it together has pretty much embodied um, our approach to the COVID-19 situation um, as well. Um, it's been a huge learning curve for businesses, of course, as we've had to feel our way through what is an unprecedented crisis for us all. Um, for yourself at Microfresh, Byron, how has it been attempting to navigate the challenges that the pandemic has brought about? Because I can imagine it's been a tremendously difficult time. It's got, it's been, a, it's been, it's been um, challenging and um it's something that most people that are alive today have never seen and will probably never see again. I mean, the only comparison I read in history or the, ma- the, the major comparison is with uh, World War Two, which, of course, most of us were not alive then, in that the whole country had to look each other in the eye and work as a team. Um, and for our business, the very first early days of lockdown. We're an international business for anybody listening. So we have 10 offices in eight countries. One of those is in China. So we got a little bit of an early wind about COVID-19. And one thing that we did as soon as the lockdown looked like it was going to be announced was I sat down with the whole team and said, there's going to be some difficult times ahead. We're all in this together. And um, nobody's going to be furloughed. Nobody's going to be laid off. You're all going to work from home. We'd like you to clear out some of your inboxes and all the other stuff that you never got around to doing. But I'm here to support you. And of course, that message, I didn't need to say it, was that they would support me because as time went on during lockdown um, and everybody saw what was happening in the world news, not just to do with COVID, but to to do with employment and to do with um, security and to do with personal security and financial security. My team, I think, looked at me and thought, he's actually supported us from day one. So we will support him. Um, COVID-19 has been challenging for us because we did actually pivot very well as a business, although I hate that terminology. It's a bit um, coy these days. But our brand makes, we're an antibacterial treatment business, so you can see our name in most retail stores, John Lewis Bedding, Next Footwear, Back to School Shoes, it will say contains microfresh technology. And what we did is we, we realized we could make hand sanitizer. We developed a mask that's got microfresh technology, which means you can wash it a hundred times. Um, and we also developed a fogging machine so you can have whole offices microfresh to prevent the growth of bacteria in between cleaning. So my team saw that. We all developed those together, even though some are working from home. And we've managed to push the business forward during COVID-19, which is, of course, a tricky and difficult time for everybody. And I can imagine that from a mental health perspective, it's been a quite challenging time as well because people do react to different crises differently. Some can adapt quite easily to working under new conditions. Others sort of find it a little bit more difficult. Perhaps they're a bit more apprehensive. And so they need a little bit more of a guiding hand, a little bit more reassurance from those above them. How has it been from that sort of perspective managing that? Yeah, again, it's it's um, it runs sort of parallel and in tune with the empathy word that I used earlier. It's not easy. It's not easy for myself working from home. Very difficult. You've got a team of people that are all being paid and they're all working from home. Uh, and there's inbuilt trust. But of course, as time went on and I realized how tricky it can be working from home, you have distractions, you have children, you have pets, you have shopping, you have other people around you, spouses. Uh, you have distractions that you don't have when you're in the office. You have the postman. And it was a case of looking at my team and thinking they have all those pressures as well. The difference is they're being paid. 
So there's going to be a natural pressure from them to think, what is my boss thinking of me? What is my director? What is my CEO thinking of me? Um, and also, whether we like it or not, the first two months of lockdown, the weather was fantastic. So people started getting fitter and doing more things. And we just built in that underlying trust that I looked at the people, especially with children, uh, and realized that the small children, uh, school-aged children, it's very difficult because the children at home as well, and my role was to give them that assurance, directly or indirectly, verbally or through body language, to say, I understand, I know you're trying, we're working together, and let's take this forward, and I'm here for you. That's really, really positive uh, to hear, um, of course. And uh, thinking about sort of how the government has led um, the country through the uh, the crisis thus far, it's provided swathes of support for businesses through, of course, small business loans, the uh, government job retention scheme as well, which has seen so many millions of people furloughed during this time to sort of ease the burden on businesses. But when it comes to the sort of safety guidelines, there's been a great deal of debate about that, not just for the businesses that have sort of been open uh, thus far throughout the course of the pandemic, but also those that are going to be reopening over the course of the next few weeks and indeed already have from your point of view do you think it's been sort of clear what's been expected from your point of view and that you've been able to continue to operate in a reasonable manner yes i mean it's been clear for us as a a business but the the tricky thing is uh, scott we're in that business we are in the antibacterial business we've been in it for 12 years so Ironically, it's not new to us. It's new to a lot of other businesses. So we understand how viruses are spread, how bacteria spread. Um, so for the team and uh, effecting change in our business to do with safety, hand sanitizers, screens, um, it's something that we've been able to do quite easily and almost seamlessly. It's a very difficult concept for, for instance, if you have a hairdressing salon, uh, if you have a restaurant, because it means with the social distancing as well, the, uh, the the two meter, and I think they're going to look at it being one meter. It means you may have to move fixed furniture, which is an extremely difficult thing to do. And also, if your business is based on bums on seats, then you're looking at reduced turnover for the foreseeable future. So, I do understand that it's a very difficult time for most, especially SMEs, which account for 99% of businesses in the UK. I think people out of our world sometimes forget that that 99% of businesses in the UK employ less than 10 people. Um, and to say to an SME, a, a nail salon, a, a chip shop, or a paint and decorator, you now have to make sure everybody's two metres apart is extremely challenging. Uh, as I say, we've managed to seamlessly integrate that into our business, but I do understand that uh, there's a lot of challenges out there and the, the, the community needs support from the government, but also from councils and from the prospective customers to understand that. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we're in need of good and positive leadership uh, more so than ever at um, uh, this point, Bar, and I completely agree. Um, so if we think about now what that future is going to hold over the course of the next sort of 12 to 18 months, what do you envision in your industry for yourself and for Microfresh? And what do you hope to achieve as we sort of move decisively into the new normal and begin to embrace the challenges that will come with that? Um, yeah, what I see for the next, well, there's a few things I think are here to stay and some things are social distancing, I believe is here to stay. Uh, it's the new normal of the, of the buzzword is that's going around. 
the health and safety aspect is here to stay. I think that's going to be here for good now. Uh, also, the sanitisation, the fact that the world is now more conscious of what they touch, who's touched it first, what potential infections on that surface. Um, I think it's here to stay. Ironically, that massively benefits our business because that's what we do. We've been doing it for 12 years. So we're an established brand in that market. But it's, uh, it was for us, we're hoping to grow our business, to create more jobs, as always, to spread further internationally. So we are opening in Australia, Indonesia, and Japan, hopefully this year, to have our overseas offices. And we're working with some quite big players in banking, in accounting and finance, in retail to make their stores and their offices safer with the microfresh technology and typically in the fogging machine. Um, retail, I think, will change unrecognizably. Online, as you can probably see in all the, all the uh, papers and in the media, is dominating. Bricks and mortar will start to eradicate. And I think there's a whole new way of shopping, retail. Hospitality, I think, again, will change beyond recognition. The, the social distancing aspect of bums on seats I think, again, will be something here for the future. And, of course, when I think of that, I think of, as a Chelsea fan, I think of football, sporting arenas, uh, theatres, cinemas. There's going to be some big changes. What they are, some of them, I, I wouldn't know and I wouldn't like to comment, but I do see some um, changes that are not going to revert back to what they were before. Certainly going to be uncertain times and changing times uh, for sure over the course of the uh, the next uh, few months but it seems like there's some real exciting plans on the horizon for microfresh even amid all of that uncertainty byron and you know i think it would be fantastic given how informative it's been having you join us on the program today to perhaps catch up and have you back on with us in future just to see where things are at at that point in time discuss some of the projects that you're getting involved with at that point those expansions into asia and also just have a look at what that new normal is really shaping up to be like at that point in time too yeah God, i would love that i would love to come back on you know whenever you need me back and uh, share my views if anybody's still interested after this uh, after this podcast um yeah because there's lots of things happening in our business we've taken on four new people in the last four weeks we've got another one to come five weeks that's one mm-hmm. a week during covid in the last five weeks um we're growing we're creating jobs we're creating young jobs as well we've taken on uh, a chemistry graduate we've taken on a marketing graduate and we've taken on a customer service executive and an operations manager so by the time we speak next time there'll be some new faces around the building probably looking at me thinking give us some leadership mr dixon most likely exactly it's going to be really exciting just to see how that all uh, comes together and let's hope there's some positive news to share in the next few months um byron gotta say it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the program today and a most insightful experience for myself and those tuning in and most importantly as well do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world because there are still a few variables in this we don't know whether there'll be that second spike yet so let's hope fingers crossed the trajectory is going to be constantly upward from here on in and it'll be a fantastic conversation that next time we speak yeah thank you scott um and covid is it's an emotional subject it's affecting thousands of families with the terrible um death that we've seen in the, in the media mm. um but let's work together as a company and as a country to make it hopefully a thing of the past thank you 
Absolutely. And for those tuning in, do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others because it really does make a tangible difference in saving lives. I was speaking today to Byron Dixon, OBE, CEO and founder of Microfresh. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this date to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and all of that is coming up next. We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago. 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did 
Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. And what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier and played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, uh, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very very strict. Probably at a time at maybe overly strict but at times you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn for you and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would 
would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's, that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen, so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I like I was going to play, and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be be involved in the squad initially. Uh, Not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out, Mm. out. so I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again the leadership that I'll show he, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. 
But the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I look round, put my foot on the ball and look round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, to just had a, look, had a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a... a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, uh, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but no, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well, so it did... Uh, um, and again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you were a young man when this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and, uh, and Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches. People must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, 
football today. Uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding, I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is, is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they, they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood. Yeah, the answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes I can elaborate as much as you want but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so but um, I'm conscious of the um, time um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many... Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. 
that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those cat, those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding, and I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course, but without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it. Yes, the word, the, word is team. The, word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Uh, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without? in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top, managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation and I think that's you're completely focused you're always thinking about uh, things thinking about improvements and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the over the past and just uh, refresh my my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.